Hello all and welcome to the latest of my coronavirus therapy sessions. It is another update. Uh, this time we're going to be talking about thoughts on the exit strategy, uh, emphasising really what we're starting to see here when it comes to what everyone's really interested in, which is how the hell are we going to get out of the present situation of lockdown around most of the world. Now, Debbie Svidhar is a professor of global public health at Edinburgh University, and she's a really good person to follow on this. She published an article online pointing out that there are really only four ways out of the current lockdown situation. And I want to say that one of the reasons I like this analysis is it, it's a little bit like a physicist's analysis, in the sense that we look at the system, we see it's unstable, we try and find what the stable points are, the endpoints that could potentially happen, and then we contemplate, you know, which one is the one that we want. So here are the options. Option number one is that we totally eradicate the virus. Every last person who has the virus is tested and quarantined and released only when they're immune and the virus is wiped out. Now, she argues that this is very unlikely, especially due to the differing abilities of countries to respond and the asymptomatic cases of the virus that still seem able to spread it. Global eradication, she argues, is not going to be possible without a vaccine and maybe not even then. Worryingly, though, if for whatever reason a vaccine cannot be developed or is ineffective, this might be our only option. But here we see the issues of health inequalities in different regions uh, of the world. So we know that the global south is struggling to test and there are very disturbing reports coming out of some countries such as Ecuador that although the number of reported cases and deaths might be low, the number of actual suspected cases and deaths might be a lot higher. Now in this case, it so happens that the pandemic has begun in countries uh, China and then spread to Europe. And these are the quote-unquote richer countries who you would have thought would have done a better job at containing this thing, which just goes to show how virulent and difficult to contain this pandemic has proved. But even in the case where those countries had initially been successful at containing it, we would see that the health inequalities across the world mean there is a reservoir of people in places where, for financial reasons, they can't contain the pandemic as well, which would always act as a real problem for containment in individual countries. So it might be possible to eradicate the virus for some individual countries with very specific characteristics, such as New Zealand, where they've managed to catch their epidemic early, and they have a realistic option of sealing the country's borders for an extended period of time. But for most people, this probably isn't going to be an option. So the second option is natural herd immunity. Uh, everyone ends up getting the virus, so that eventually around 60 to 70% of people have had it, depending on r naught and their immunity protects everyone else. Obviously, this would result in hundreds of thousands of deaths, perhaps millions around the world, especially if lots of people get the illness at once and require medical treatment. If you assume a 0.6% fatality rate, which I would argue is optimistic based on what we know, but not beyond the realms of possibility, this would amount to around a million dead in the United States. And we also know that it's very possible that the infection fatality rate could increase if healthcare was overwhelmed. And of course, it's important to remember that healthcare being overwhelmed or pressured, this is not a very linear thing that's kind of difficult to model and understand. There's evidence from the UK already that there are more non-coronavirus related deaths in the last week. Um, some of this is surely due to people who are sick and should go to hospital who are not currently doing so. So overwhelmed healthcare causes deaths that aren't due to coronavirus either. There was an interesting paper that came out, which I had on my list of sites, which I'm now struggling to find, uh, if anyone manages to get a hold of it, then let me know. 
But essentially this paper pointed out that based on the fraction around 5% of the UK as an example country that's currently infected, you could expect to need between 3 and 11 new waves of infection, like the ones that we've just endured, before herd immunity is established. Now it's true that the later waves of infection, there would be more immune people and so they would be slower, um, but it, it, it's clear that if we open up from a lockdown now, uh, chances are the situation in a few weeks or a few months will look very similar to how it does at the moment purely because there's not been enough time for any sort of meaningful immunity to be established within most of the people in this country. Now, I would argue that in the UK, uh, healthcare is very close to being overwhelmed right now. We're building field hospitals in the big convention centre just down the road from where I live, for example. Non-urgent procedures have been largely cancelled. Uh, and indeed, some urgent procedures such as chemotherapy are on hold at the moment. And I can only uh, begin to imagine what that's like for the people who are dealing with that at the moment. Clearly, we don't want waves of infection even this large to happen again, let alone anything larger. If we had no restrictions whatsoever, and people behaved exactly as they normally would despite the deadly pandemic, we might expect the epidemic to be over in a few months, but it would leave a truly awful death toll in its wake, so I don't think we can let this happen. It's almost the equivalent of the do-nothing strategy. So it seems likely that for herd immunity to naturally establish itself, we might need another 3 to 11 cycles of infection like the ones we're currently witnessing in any given country. In countries with larger fractions of infected people, like Italy where it may be up to 10%, it could be fewer. Wuhan locked down in January and reopened in early April, with the first cases recorded in early December, so perhaps one of these cycles that we're talking about lasts 4 to 5 months. So you can see that if a vaccine does indeed take 12 to 18 months to develop and deploy, which we'll be talking about in the next episode, we could pursue a strategy of lockdown and relaxation of restrictions that keeps the healthcare system under enormous strain, but not to the point of breaking. Then we will maybe have another three to four cycles to endure before the vaccine comes and ends the situation. So even that might not be enough for herd immunity to arise. In other words, it would be a situation where herd immunity is partly established by vaccination and partly by natural infections of people. But obviously this has some terrible cost to it. Now, one of the things that has been a concern and continues to be a concern is that there's a false and very dangerous politicised dichotomy of lockdown and sacrifice the economy to save lives versus allowing the epidemic to run and maintaining the economy. Um, this assumes that the economy can simply run as normal in the midst of a very deadly pandemic, which strikes me as extremely optimistic. Nevertheless, those of us who think that the lockdown is necessary for now, including me, have to acknowledge that it does cause incredible damage. What we're seeing here is obviously not the ideal way to treat an epidemic or a pandemic. It's a last-ditch sledgehammer to try and prevent an even worse outcome, and an admission that our normal Route 1 methods for controlling an epidemic have failed so far. As such, Yes, people will die due to the lockdown. Millions of jobs have been lost. People face food insecurity, income insecurity, and lack of treatment for other health conditions. Deaths from non-COVID causes are rising and will continue to rise during the lockdown. We can't divorce the economy from human lives either way. Damage to the economy damages human lives. Uh, and there's no way that you can simply sacrifice human lives on the altar of the economy and hope that that will make everything better. And in countries where the lockdown is badly implemented, for example where food and vital supplies cannot be distributed, this toll could be even worse. So it's not even clear that the same remedy is going to apply to each country. I wouldn't want to be in the position of making this kind of decision 
where it is so obvious that you are trading off deaths from one cause to deaths from another cause that might affect different groups of people, it's not an easy decision to make. So option three in Professor Sritar's analysis of how this could potentially end is maybe that we focus on treating the symptoms of the disease. Maybe an effective antiviral medicine can be discovered, and that could be helpful. But from what I've read, it seems that antiviral medications are most effective early on in the course of treatment, and when done as a last resort, they have their own risks due to the high doses required to make a real impact. If a treatment arises that allows hospitalised patients shorter stays or avoiding the ICU, it might be possible to manage the epidemic by treating its symptoms, but this will not be viable for every country and is going to require massive expenditure on healthcare resources. And of course it does involve a lot of people getting sick again. Finally, option four is the most optimistic route. Professor Sridhar describes it as the following. A likely scenario is that countries follow South Korea's example while they wait for a vaccine. Increase testing to identify all carriers of the virus, trace the people they have contacted, and quarantine them for up to three weeks. This would involve large-scale planning, the swift development of a contact tracing app, and thousands of volunteers to help with swabbing, processing results, and monitoring quarantine. More relaxed physical distancing measures could be enforced to prevent the spread of the virus and ease the pressure on healthcare systems. So we're talking about creating a new world where some restrictions remain in place, I think it's important to identify the places where transmission occurs the most and avoid those things as far as possible. This is not going to be a switch where we just switch the quarantine switch off and go completely back to normal. There's going to need to be as many measures as possible to get this R number, this number of people who is infected on average per person to go down. Now we've discussed on the show already that South Korea's experience with MERS outbreak uh, left them with a more prepared public health system and the very high level of use for digital technologies has made contact tracing and testing apps more useful. And the good news is that it seems like this is the approach that many countries are now looking to, given its success in South Korea, where despite a high-profile super-spreading case, the deaths are still at around 250, and the active cases have actually been going down for the last few weeks. It's got to be one of the few places in the world that can say that. So we have seen that this approach can work here, It's not just a fluke, as cases have now been manageable in the country since January, while many other nations have been forced to shut down. Perhaps at some point South Korea will need to impose a lockdown or harsher measures, but it seems from their example not impossible to at least delay imposing such measures for several weeks, perhaps much longer. And so if we're imagining these cycles of infection where we need to do harsher measures and then more relaxed measures and so on to try and tweak R and keep it below 1 so that our epidemic doesn't grow... South Korea has demonstrated that you can do this for quite an extended period of time uh, and apparently keep things at some level of normalcy. So other governments are now starting to catch on. Here in the UK it's been announced that the NHS is trialling a contact tracing app which works in exactly the way we suggested it might in the next 18 months episode on exit strategies. So this is from the BBC, they say, quote, At present the idea is that people who have self-diagnosed as having coronavirus will be able to declare their status in the app. The software will then send the equivalent of a yellow alert to any other users who they've recently been close to for an extended period of time. If a medical test confirms that the original user is indeed infected, then a stronger warning, effectively a red alert, will be sent instead, signalling that the other users should go into quarantine. To report testing positive, the user would have to enter a verification code which they would have received alongside their COVID-19 status. So in my view, it's good news that this is finally being announced and developing it should be a top priority, but obviously this app alone is not enough, even if it works well. 
there are of course privacy and security concerns. Now, I don't mean to dismiss these at all. It's one of the key trade-offs that every society constantly has to make between security and freedom. And we have seen countless incidences in the past, I'm thinking specifically with terrorism, where disasters have been used as an excuse for governments to impinge on people's freedom, impinge on people's civil liberties, and the rights that we give to governments at this time, or that governments take, are never given back. So there is a very real risk that this can happen here. At the same time, I lament the loss of everyone's privacy, but I also think it's really a fate accompli. We know that Google, Facebook are tracking us constantly for the purposes of surveillance capitalism, and in fact, Apple and Google are the companies that are being contacted by nation-states now to use their immense surveillance and tracking apparatus to help in this effort. I mean, the government doesn't have these capabilities on its own. It actually needs these companies, which already have these infrastructures, to come up with. And it's interesting that Google... Uh, released a sort of series of uh, data updates on the website measuring people's level of tr public transport use and so on to see how well they were doing at complying with lockdown orders in different regions. And this was available rather shockingly quickly, which makes you realise that all of this data was obviously being collected and tracked already. So yes, privacy is a massive concern, but we've already spent the last decade signing away huge chunks of our privacy, or in Shoshana Zubov's view, having them harvested as raw economic material to convert into profit, to these tech giants. Now I would contend that at least if it's the government, there is some mechanism of oversight into how the data is used, flawed as it may be. At least if the data is abused egregiously and people find out about it, you can fire them in the next election, assuming you live in a democracy. Your ability to influence the ethical decisions taken by tech giants is, in my view, far more limited due to their shares of market capture and so on. Now that doesn't make this all okay. But I do feel like, given how much our privacy has already been trampled on and stolen, it's not a game-killing objection, it just means that we have to be careful about how these things are designed. So aside from that issue, there are several other major issues with how this might work, even assuming that the app itself works exactly as intended, and there are no bugs, glitches, etc. We all know what it can be like when new software is rolled out in a hurry. Firstly, we're going to need to have a huge proportion of the population voluntarily using this app, and it's opt-in at the moment, so it would have to be. You'd need to first own a smartphone, second have the app installed, third have your smartphone on you, always, and fourth keep Bluetooth or internet activated at all times to make the connections. Now, all of these things are perfectly feasible really, and a lot more so than they were 10 years ago, and given that the big tech companies are obviously cooperating here, which they have to because this is obviously good for their livelihood as well, uh, the sort of common interest of lots of organisations is going to help us out here. At some point your phone is probably going to send you a notification saying install this app to help fight coronavirus, and you should probably do it. But obviously all of these issues have to be considered. We're going to need people to sign up to this system, to disclose this personal information, and crucially, to agree to self-isolate until they can be tested if they get a yellow or red alert. And we're going to need every employer in the country to agree to allow people to self-isolate if they get a yellow or red alert for this to work. If testing is not massively scaled up, this could be the equivalent of asking people to isolate themselves an awful lot. Secondly, there will be hypochondriacs who think they have the disease, and potentially even trolls who abuse the app to force other people into self-isolation. This is all exacerbated by the fact that the symptoms for coronavirus mimic dozens of other respiratory illnesses, especially mild cases. If people start sending out yellow alerts like crazy, you'll probably end up with dozens of them. Even prior to this app, I've had plenty of people suggest to me that they had the virus, 
and I don't even get out that much. And to be honest, who amongst you listening hasn't wondered if you already have it, especially given the chances that you might have no symptoms? So if the app is clogged up with false reporting, then the yellow alerts are totally ignored. And if it takes someone who sends a yellow alert several days to get tested and get a test result, by the time they're confirmed and that alert becomes red, the people they've come into contact with might have already infected some others. Thirdly, we don't yet know exactly how this illness spreads, so what constitutes a close interaction with someone? If you meet someone for five seconds and they sneeze on you, that might be enough. If you're with someone for 30 minutes, you might get lucky and not get ill. Obviously, there's a balance to be struck here. If you define an interaction as briefly passing someone in the street, your phone will be flooded with alerts while your actual risk of being infected could be quite low. If you define it as canoodling in bed with them for seven hours, then you'll miss out on a lot of potential infection routes and the app will hardly work at all for its aim of contact tracing and isolating people who might be infected. And then you have to consider super spreading events, such as the buffet lunches that likely helped the virus spread so quickly on cruise ships and in the case of that individual church super spreader in South Korea. Obviously, this is the kind of parameter that you need to carefully refine by gathering as much evidence as you can about how the disease is transmitted, how successful you are at contact tracing and finding people who turn out to be uh, symptomatic or to have the virus, which requires some kind of large scale trialing that could take a while. People would need to be kept on board while all these tweaks are in place and if the app doesn't initially work. And of course, to get that kind of data about how successful you are at identifying new cases, you need to test people. You need to test everyone who's being told to self-isolate, which could easily be thousands or tens of thousands of people. And you need to test them all on a regular basis. So again, the testing is just crucial for the success of this kind of approach to work at all. Fourthly, we know that the illness can be spread through fomites, i.e. you touch something that someone infected has touched and then touch your face. Uh, We'll talk about how likely that is later on. Uh, Regular hand washing, not touching your face, wearing gloves in public, etc. These are going to remain essential pieces of health advice to limit this kind of transmission because the app is not going to be particularly helpful if you pick it up off elevator buttons or public transport handrails. Fifth, and maybe even most importantly, we don't yet know what fraction of transmissions occur when a person is asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, so when they have no symptoms or before they develop them. We also don't know what fraction of cases are almost totally asymptomatic or mild enough not to be noticed by the sufferer, which means they'll never be picked up or tested at all. We still don't really know how many people have mild or no symptoms but can still spread the virus. Perhaps as many as 20 to 50% could be the actual figure. It's worth pointing out that this is one of the key factors that makes SARS-CoV-2 different to SARS. SARS went straight for the lungs, announcing its presence by making people cough and causing rapid pneumonia. SARS-CoV-2 can hang out in the throat and nose as an upper respiratory tract infection, like a cold, which will cause mild symptoms and which people won't notice to the same extent. I mean, I feel like I have a cold pretty much all the time. These cases are likely to be responsible for a big fraction of transmission. After all, if you feel fine, you'll still go to work, you'll still go to mass gatherings, and so forth. And this is really how it was possible to contain SARS by isolating people with symptoms who went straight to the hospital, while this has not proved possible in most places for SARS-CoV-2. Now this sounds like a long list of caveats trashing this strategy. I still think this is by far the best strategy available to us, either to try and reach some sort of steady state where we're not experiencing a surge of cases, or at least to extend the periods where we're not in lockdown, minimising the damage to the economy until a vaccine can be developed. None of these caveats necessarily mean that the whole system can't work. 
But instead, each of them, and we're talking here about people who won't sign up to the app, people who will abuse it, people who will transmit uh, through the environment and so on, that they mean that it's likely to be less effective at reducing R0, which is ultimately what our main aim is to keep the epidemic under control. An R0 of less than one, and we don't have a growing epidemic. R0 much above one, and our epidemic will inevitably grow until the point where we'll have to lock down again. Now, all of this can be improved by tweaks to the app, adopting other policies as well. Most importantly, a massive scale-up of testing, which is by far the most important weapon to try any kind of testing and tracing strategy. And naturally, the incentive for getting this right, saving lives and keeping your country running with some vague semblance of normalcy for the next 18 months or even longer, is pretty massive. Now, I want to talk about a specific research paper, because there's now some preliminary research looking into how well this strategy might work. A paper published in Science at the end of March was titled, quote, Quantifying SARS-CoV-2 transmission suggests epidemic control with digital contact tracing. So in the paper, they effectively try to estimate what fraction of transmissions occur in which way, and they break it down into four types. Symptomatic transmission, that's transmission from someone with clear symptoms of the disease, and maybe you can even recall how it happened. Second is pre-symptomatic transmission, someone passes the disease to you, and then later they get sick themselves. Third, asymptomatic transmission. You get the disease from someone who never experiences noticeable symptoms themselves. And fourth, environmental transmission. So this is picking the disease up off of surfaces in the way we described. Clearly, there are some points to make here. The first kind, the symptomatic kind, you can figure out just by asking people if they recall being near someone sick. In a lot of cases, this will be, yeah, my wife was sick, my family member was sick, that I think they had the coronavirus. It's clear how I got this. The second, pre-symptomatic, you might be able to figure out in hindsight by using an app that measures when people have been close together and is retrospectively updated when someone gets sick. Asymptomatic transmission you can only really reduce if your testing is good enough to test a whole bunch of asymptomatic people as well. So reducing this really requires some level of social distancing. And environmental transmission is also hard to reduce, although public hygiene is obviously key to helping there. Now, you can see immediately just how important these four parameters are to how well we are going to be able to control this epidemic in the future. Clearly, if most transmission is asymptomatic or environmental, contact tracing and testing is not going to work so well. On the other hand, if it's symptomatic or pre-symptomatic, we have a chance. The researchers try to estimate this using a model that analyzes some of the earliest outbreaks of COVID-19 based on what fractions of individuals had symptoms, how many contact traces were possible, and so on. Now, these numbers need to have a pretty big grain of salt on them, but I think it's interesting, even though this is very preliminary and these things are going to be refined over time, they find that fitting their model to the best available data says that they have estimates that look like the following. So what they can actually do is figure out what fraction of R, which is this uh, average number of people that each infected person passes them on to, uh, is, is accounted for by each mode of transmission. This is very interesting. So they say that the overall R is probably around 2. They think the fraction that is symptomatic is 0.8 out of 2. They expect the fraction that's pre-symptomatic is 0.9. Asymptomatic, 0.2. Environmental, 0.1. So just quickly in percentages, 40% of transmission is symptomatic, 45% is pre-symptomatic, 
10% is asymptomatic, and 5% is environmental. Now, all these estimates have big error bars on them. In earlier podcasts, we've talked about R0 being closer to 3. We know that none of these things is being perfectly measured at all, and this was really extrapolated from quite a small early sample. So despite the good work of these researchers, we have to be very clear that these are just estimates. However, let's assume they're accurate for now so that we can discuss it. Remember, if total R0 is above 1, then the epidemic will grow, although of course much more slowly if it's close to 1. If total R0 is less than 1, it's controlled and it shrinks. Here we can see that they conclude asymptomatic and environmental factors are relatively much less important than the others. However, they also note that pre-symptomatic transmission is about 0.9. So imagine that you have perfect contact tracing and testing for everyone that showed symptoms. Your total R0 would still be 1.2, even if you cut off all of those transmission vectors, which would be enough to grow the epidemic slightly slower than seasonal flu. However, we can see that if you block off a majority of symptomatic transmissions and half of pre-symptomatic transmissions using a very rapid and effective contact tracing app, you can perhaps get R0 to below 1. So for this, you're going to need to have an app that can not only trace anyone who came into contact with someone with symptoms, but also retrospectively go back and say, yeah, that guy you met a week ago now has coronavirus, so you have to isolate yourself. So their study, early as it is, does suggest that this strategy might actually be able to contain an epidemic. And of course, even if it doesn't, it does slow down the epidemic, which buys you longer out of lockdown. Obviously, the estimates of these parameters is going to be really important. And as we've discussed plenty of times on this show, R depends on all kinds of things, like how often people interact with each other, and so on. But if you can get good estimates of these R fractions, you can start to say how effective your app would need to be to suppress the pandemic. You need to know what fraction of people had to use it, how many transmissions it would need to cut off, and so on. Clearly, in the context of this, anything that we can do in general to reduce R, such as limiting our number of contacts overall, if not a total lockdown for the full 12 to 18 months, is going to be helpful. I'm thinking specifically here of hand washing, wearing face masks in public, reducing the use of public transport, and maybe even stopping gatherings indoors for quite a while, and so on. If these things reduce R by 0.1 or 0.2, at least in this analysis, it is equivalent to a big fraction of the population diligently using the contact tracing app, or many, many thousands of tests when capacity might be limited. So this is the big question here, is how can we live in an R less than one world effectively that doesn't require lockdown, but prevents the epidemic from growing again? Even with these figures, which I think are probably a bit optimistic, there's not much margin for error. You need a huge fraction of all symptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission chains to be cut off. You're going to need massive testing of the population, widespread use of the app, including amongst vulnerable people who might be elderly and might not have smartphones, and significant work by a very large group of volunteers to trace, test, and keep everything running. Compared to the alternatives, though, this is our best shot at returning to normality anytime soon before the vaccine arrives, and I'll be watching with interest to see how these programmes perform in the countries where they're implemented. Because we need something like this. There's no other option. A one-off lockdown is worse than pointless because the epidemic will surge back again. A continuous lockdown for 18 months is unthinkable, and will result in widespread civil disobedience for the lockdown. Eradicating the virus is going to be difficult now in most countries, and especially globally, and doing nothing is not an exit strategy. So we need to make this work as best we can. 
if we don't make this work and decide that a lockdown is a one-off and we're just going to dispose of it, then the consequences could be terrible. We might be forced back into a lockdown when the situation is far worse than it was when we originally locked down, and it doesn't really bear thinking about how that might go. Incidentally, even if you take these figures with a grain of salt, I think it illustrates something that was really increasingly obvious. According to this study, just 5% of infections arose from environmental factors, i.e. the classic thing we were all warned about, you touch a contaminated surface and then you touch your face. The overwhelming majority of transmission, 95%, is person to person. So this makes a little bit of a mockery of the official advice early on in the UK being simply to wash your hands more frequently, and official advice in many Western countries saying that wearing masks is unnecessary or even unhelpful. If you take these figures seriously, even if you assume that washing your hands very regularly and not touching your face cuts off all environmental transmission, while masks only reduce the chance of person-to-person transmission by 10%, say, wearing masks would still be twice as effective as hand-washing measures. The hand-washing and catching and sneezes and coughs is going to be very important if you are sick and don't know it, or if you think you just have a cold but you really have coronavirus, in those cases you'll be one of these symptomatic people and you can cut down that much bigger R fraction than you can in the case where you're not sick but you're trying to prevent yourself from picking it up off the environment. I hope that makes sense. Now the advice surrounding mask wearing in the UK especially felt like a misrepresentation of the available science. The motivation behind it is clear. We didn't have enough masks, and they are needed for key workers and healthcare workers, rather than for paranoid people to wear around the house. I did have a few masks at one point that I'd bought in February when I was watching this from afar, and then I gave most of them to the local hospital back at the start of March, and I sent the rest of them to my stepbrother who works in the NHS. Um, To justify giving this advice, though, uh, they took some arguments about certain kinds of masks being more effective than others about masks being less effective when wet, about masks being less effective if they're taken off or put on carelessly, and a kind of argument, a sort of moral hazard argument, whereby masks might change your behaviour if you feel uh, invulnerable and take more risks when you're wearing one. However, each of these problems with wearing masks does not mean that they would be ineffective, and they can all be addressed if proper advice and procedures are given and adhered to. Clearly, given that we have now resorted to shutting down entire countries in a desperate attempt to reduce R, Any other measures we can take which are relatively inexpensive and which reduce R are good. The only argument for not advising the general public to wear masks when they go out is that the supply is limited and they're needed for frontline healthcare workers. And this argument might be overwhelmingly convincing, but it's very different from saying that they don't work. Backtracking on this advice can only undermine public trust in the advice they're getting even further. What should be totally clear is that it's simply impossible to do anything like this level of contact tracing and testing unless you have the capacity to test many thousands of people a day. So ramping up testing capacity is not just important for the short term of fighting the outbreak, but to allow any kind of normality to return, potentially for the next one to ten years. Every pound or dollar or euro or yen that is spent on developing better, faster tests and more testing capacity is going to pay incredible dividends over the next few months and years. That said, I think we also have to be somewhat realistic about this. The antibody tests, which could potentially be available in the form of a finger prick uh, and blood, which will work a little bit like a pregnancy test if they work uh, well. We discussed in a previous episode how Bayes' theorem means that they might not always work well, particularly in cases where the prevalence is low and your prior likelihood of being sick is low. 
but these tests might not pick you up in the early phase of your illness where you're most infectious. So we're going to need to rely on the antigen tests, which are the tests that currently require someone to come around and swab way back in your nose. And there's going to be a bottleneck here, which is to do with the number of people who can administer these tests and the labs that are capable of doing that. And different countries will have different bottlenecks. So what's needed really is this, you know, you hate to say it, a wartime effort on testing to get these volunteers in place to do this and to get the labs ready and the kits ready to perform as many tests as possible. Um, because our success at doing this really is the deal breaker as to whether we have to go back into lockdown in three or four months or whether we can continue in a sort of South Korea way uh, with a low R, keeping the epidemic under some control and having some semblance of normal life for the next year or so. So that would be my number one priority, apart from, of course, saving the lives of people who are already sick at the moment. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, where I speculate on things that are not in my field of expertise. If what I say is contradicted by an epidemiologist or virologist, assume that the other person is right. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like me to cover, uh, things you wouldn't like me to cover, uh, go to physicspodcast.com. There's a contact form you can click on the top right-hand corner of that page. I answer as many of those emails as I get, and it always makes my day when I get a nice email from a listener. If you want to send a not nice email, you're also welcome to do that. Uh, you can review the show on iTunes or anywhere else. Um, people claim that it helps people to find the show. I think the best way to do that really is to just recommend it to other people if you found it useful. Um, you can also uh, engage and spar with me on Twitter at PhysicsPod. And there's a Facebook page for Physical Attraction, which you can follow if you're not on any other platform. Um, until next time, then, take care of yourselves, and I'll speak to you very soon.